0: Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. We've got a great interview for you. A couple of weeks ago, Rep C. Bruno, who is a science fiction author and also co-owner of Athon Books, joined me for a live hangout to talk about the state of science fiction and what it's like to be a science fiction writer and also helping other people publish their stories. And we had a very wide-ranging conversation that that touched on all those topics and so much more. And then, as technology has a tendency to do, we had an internet outage right toward the end. So, Rhett was gracious enough to come back on the show with me uh, yesterday when when we're releasing the show. And we continued that conversation and, you know, meandered all over the publishing landscape. It was a lot of fun. And I hope you enjoy it. If you are in the midst of writing a book, you know, we did our challenge in the fall, to write a novel in 60 days with Dabble. And we had such a great time. After the first of the year, we started thinking about what we could do to continue this challenge format. And it's really a great way for uh, our panelists to have a good time with each other and for us to have audience interaction through the live YouTube stream. It's so much fun. And we are kicking off tomorrow night on February 15th, the rewrite a novel in 60 days with Dabble. And we're taking that novel that we started on back in the fall. And, you know, a lot of us finished those books and, or at least finished the first draft. And now it's time to revise and look at what we have. And we're gonna be using Dabble to rewrite that book and to get in and whip that thing into shape and, you know, in hopes that we, you know, uh, either sell this book to a, uh, a traditional publisher, if that's the, the choice for authors, or to indie publish, if that's the choice for authors. You know, we are publishing agnostic, but we care about you telling your story. So join us, if you will. Go to storycraft.cafe. You can find all the information that you need right there. Now on to our show. And we are live. Thank you for joining us here in the Storycraft Cafe. It looks like we have a couple of folks in the chat already. Welcome in with us. Uh, Glad to have you today, Rhett C. Bruno. Um, I wanted, I was just telling Rhett just a second ago that I wanted to talk about science fiction, and, and Rhett is one of those guys that, you know, kind of has his pulse on uh, what's current in sci-fi for a lot of different reasons. Uh, One, he's a a publisher, uh, but he's also one of the best science fiction writers that I know. And uh, I just wanted to hang out for a little bit and talk about sci-fi. So welcome to the show, Rhett. Thank you for having
1: me, Hank. Good to see everybody here. I see some familiar names.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Welcome everybody in. Welcome everybody in. Uh, So Rhett, for for folks that might not know you, uh, we met... Gosh, it's it's probably been closer S- to 10 years now. Six, seven, six. I think like six. Yeah,
1: you eight, were my something first like that. interview.
0: <laughs> the better part of a decade, we'll just put it that way. Um, and when I first met you, you had a series that you were writing um that was published with a um with a big five publisher. And um and you eventually um started writing and publishing an indie series and then you got your rights back to that original and you republished that. And then you and Steve Bowyer, um started up a publisher that's doing sci-fi and fantasy and a lot has happened. So first off, just kind of introduce yourself and tell people kind of your story as to how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, it's been a, a long road. Um, like you <laughs> said, we first talked, I was probably, I want to say 2015 or 16, probably um, so. when I published uh, Titan born with random House, right. And that was sort of my start. Um, I started as a traditional author, um, with traditional deals, the agent route and everything. I worked with the version books, an imprint of random house. Um, and then sort of over time started to make a lot of inroads and friendships with indie authors, and kind of studied and learned and that was what what you said, eventually, I wound up kind of getting my rights back. Um, the ran- that random house imprint shut down, which made it easier than it usually is, um, yeah. and really moving into indie, uh, learning from all the authors I've met, learning from just watching, and that was sort of the start of it. Um, I met Steve Bollier early on, and we wrote a book called *The Missile Crisis* together, and then decided to start athon Books, um, which is our publisher. Um, again, and again with science fiction, that's where we started. That was sort of our big thing. And now we do a lot of fantasy too. Um, But yeah, so I, we kind of took everything I learned as an author um, from selling to honestly dealing with contracts and figuring out the things I didn't like. And we put that into a publisher that we like to really consider and keep author friendly um, with very, very friendly deals for authors. Um, high royalties, good terms, that sort of stuff—the kind of things that I would have wanted to see back when I was um, um, right, going the more traditional route. Yeah. Um. And yeah, that brings us here. I've written a lot of science fiction. We've published a lot more. Uh, we do about two hundred books a year. So.
0: Yeah. Well, being in the position that you are, um, you are uh, in a unique position. You have been traditionally published. You then indie published, and now you. Um, are a publisher and I, I guess, do you guys call yourself a, a small press publisher? What, where do you kind of define where Athon books live? Uh,
1: it's really hard. I, I don't think the, the publicly accepted terms have really updated um, <laughs> for independent publishers that make money. Honestly, yeah. um, they used to just be really small. It was like 10 books a year. And right. their model was sort of emulate the big guys in ways that don't really work. Um, so I would just call us an independent publisher because okay. by the definition, with the amount of books we do a year, we're not small. Um, right. How and, many books
0: did you guys publish last year?
1: So we do around 200 a year. Now, of course, we that is basically insane. only do series, right? So yeah, that's a lot of series books. And honestly, a lot of the way I look at things is when it's a series, it's almost hard to look at it as individual books. I kind of see yeah. it as an entire package. Um, so that's a very different model than what like a big four would do where each book has like a year of wait time before them. Um, so it means we put out things a lot faster than that yeah. type of publisher. Um, but again, the definitions, I think like 30 or 50 books is cons- or below is considered a small press. And I know tons doing more than that that are independent um, so it it really becomes hard to define. All I can say is we're not owned by a corporation, which makes us independent.
0: What the, what is the bottleneck with traditional publishing? We, we hear these stories where someone turns in a book, and then it's a year. A lot of times, a year minimum before that book hits the shelves. And I, I know there's you know the back and forth with editing and all of that, but you guys have proven that it doesn't have to take that long. So w- what is it that, so there's a, a the re- really s- move so slowly,
1: a really simple reason. And that's something we talk about with authors all the time, because, you know, every author we sign, that one of their first questions is like, well, my book be on shelves. And that right there is the answer for the gotcha. big, big publishers in order to get things on shelves. They need to basically have all the information in to the trade reviews, to the stores, the libraries, the shop owners um, for a book nine to 12 months ahead of time um, so that they can assess how many copies they want to put on their shelves, all the Barnes and Nobles, all these other stores. Um, So really it's because the big four is still making most of their money on print. And when we say we can't compete with them on that space, it's because it's true, right? They own the shelf space. Right. They have the relationships, they have the trucks, they can put books on the shelves. And so, you know, that was what I saw coming up when I was working with a lot of small presses is they weren't doing or taking advantage of things that being independent lets you do. They were sort of trying to emulate what a random house imprint might do. And without the ability to load shelves, and get these amazing trade reviews and blurbs from people like George Martin and stuff that the bigger publishers can do. You're not getting that shelf space, and therefore you're not gonna sell as many copies. And that's why so many of those earlier small presses shut down.
0: Gotcha. Um, you guys really um, focus on ebook and audiobook. Um, what do you think about where the industry is? right now was like audio for the last several years has been the, the biggest growth market. Um, why do you think that is? Is it because we're all walking around with with cell phones that have all this memory and most of us have, you know, earbuds of, of some sort and it, it's just our life has, has kind of taken us in that direction.
1: You know, I, that obviously helps. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people were scared during COVID that without the commuters Audiobook book yep. listening would go down, but you know, for us and for a lot of the audio publishers and Audible, the people we talk to, um, that didn't really happen because, like you said, people go on walks, they put in an AirPod, they're gonna clean the house, they put in an AirPod and listen to a book. Um, but I, th- I do think obviously being a commuter country helps, um, yeah. being a country that's spread out, so there's delivery people, trucks, Ubers, all these things helps, right? Most of the U.S. isn't walkable. And so you throw it on your radio and you could listen to a book. So, yeah, I mean, I think audio is a huge, huge part of the future. Um, The same as ebook and the way we tend to look at it, at least launching a series out right at a certain point doing audio becomes hard just because it is so much pricier, like the sales need to be there, but you know, starting out a series, first three books, we sort of view them as one A and one B format wise. Um, That's why, I mean, we made a big push into synchronizing releases by putting them out in both formats at the same time. And sort of that push started four years ago from us. And what we started doing with Audible Studios, they weren't doing that on anything. And then they thought it was kind of weird um, because there's a little quirks that happen, right? They're getting a book that hasn't been read by every reader where every little typo has been found because it's been out for a year. Um, So there were little things they had to get used to, but... You know that sync stuff has become big because now all these places are realizing if you if you treat audio like an afterthought, odds are it's going to sell like an afterthought. And maybe there's not as many listeners as ebook readers, but the price different kind of makes them equal
0: well, um we we moved houses last year, and when we were getting ready to move, um, I had all of these books that I had collected, you, you know, paperbacks and hardcovers and just stuff that I'd collected through the years. And we were moving, and this was a a prime opportunity to kind of go through my bookshelves and and see what it was I wanted to move. And I realized that I had a lot of paper copies of books that uh, that I wanted to give to my sons or to my three sons-in-law. And, and I wound up giving away almost all of my books. I kept a couple of shelves of things that I've just collected that, that mean something to me. But I I quickly realized that over 90% of my reading happens on my Kindle paperwhite or, um, you know, in my, my earbuds. And it just, I I realized that, that my life had changed and the way that I consume books and, um, yeah, I, I can only imagine the amount of people out there that are going through the same thing that I was. That just an ebook and an audio book just makes sense for for the way I consume books.
1: Yeah, it's just more efficient, and I, I don't yeah. think print will ever go away. Um, I mean, yeah. in the same way, I have friends, um, you know, even Steve, my partner at Athan. Yeah, like, he ordered a hard edition of the new Harry Potter game. You know, <laughs> like, and I have friends that still do that. Right. Versus just getting a digital because there is something about being able to hold a book or, you know, but that's, you know, that makes up for it in price, right? Like yeah. a big fork book might sell less copies than one of our books and make the same because they're going to sell those at like 30 bucks. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the things even out, but I don't think print is going to go anywhere. Honestly, like it's kind of held steady and, and, Ebooks and audiobooks are getting huge. So,
0: yeah, um, th- that first book that you and Steve wrote together, "Luna Missile Crisis," one of my favorite um, books of the last decade. So much fun! Um, do you remember what the what the first idea um, that you had for that book, where it came from?
1: Yeah, so um, I think it was like a, a short story I had, um, and like the first idea was really, I think the US and Russia racing to like an alien spacecraft in space. Yeah. it was like, a, a just a little short story I wrote um, where they were kind of having to work together. And, you know, the next idea that I, I had was like, well, what about the start of that? Right, right. And then I was kind of just thinking of ideas for how it could have happened. And I came up with the dead curtain Um, which was sort of the irradiated Iron Curtain, and everything sort of evolved from there. Um, (laughs) If people don't know what it is, basically an alien spaceship accidentally warp speeds into Earth's orbit in the 60s, around the time Kennedy should have been assassinated. And because it arrives, everyone gets confused, nukes go off, the alien shoots them down, and so all of the nukes in the Iron Curtain are sort of detonated right where they were um and it like splits europe in half with this wasteland and then the book kind of talks about sort of the struggle between the u.s and the USSR trying to appease these aliens to get their technology um but yeah that was sort of as simple as it started was just that idea and you know as as you've read it it became a very very character-centric story which is sort of how I like to write books is come up with, come up with a concept, um, you know, as, and I think that's probably my most high concept book, um, as far as being really out there, really specific to that time period, um, and genres, but, you know, to create that concept as a backdrop and sort of tell everything through the eye of one or two characters, um, that's typically how I write books on my own which is why i like to use first person right. um and when me and steve R- steve writes is jamie castle so we wrote luna together we did the buried goddess saga together um black badge series together and that's what we also that is kind of our style to create this really really complex world in our heads but you only only see it specifically through the eyes of the character um and it's kind of more of a character centric um people say it's Kind of more visual, right? It's sort of how a TV show or a movie is told. Um, And that's just our style. But yeah, Luna, Luna was a lot of fun. Uh, I started on my own. I'd never written anything in our world. Right. Right. Like I've only, I had only ever done far future and everything. This was sixties and I'm not, I I wasn't alive in the sixties at all. So that was hard. (laughs) Never. Neither was Steve. He's pretty young too. So that was fun to figure out, but. Yeah, I brought him on just because, of, A, there was a Christian character. He was a pastor, and I wanted to bring some authenticity to that. And I think I just needed help setting yeah. it in, in the real world, which I hadn't done before. And so we worked together. I mean, we wrote that book. I, it's one book. It's pretty long for a standalone, but it took us two years to get that to where it was when it was published. It's took a lot of detailed work, a lot of help with the 60s, stuff like that.
0: Is that how books typically start for you? Does it start as just a a concept that you just kind of want to unravel a little bit or, um, you know, chase a rabbit down the rabbit hole and see where it goes? Um, Do do you normally have like a a big concept idea that you want to pursue or is it more the kind of what if game and you just start kind of unraveling? Uh, and, and see where the story goes.
1: Yeah, when I'm writing on my own, it's usually the first. I kind of keep keep thinking of concepts, yeah, until one really sticks and then sort of see uh, uh, like figure out how a main character would fit into that concept um, or two. And again, if you've read any of my solo work, typically it's one or two main characters, right? As far as who you're seeing the perspective of. Um, because I like the world to evolve through the character, but yeah, it's usually kind of figuring out this crazy concept and how can that really affect a human. Um, right. And you know, that does take me longer to, to develop ideas. <laughs> I learned quickly after going full time that I wasn't built to be sort of a fast prolific typewriter um, that I'm, fairly slow at getting down words. Like when I'm in the zone, I could do it. But as far as getting to a point where I want to start projects, that sort of thing, it takes me a while. So it really was meant to be me kind of using the things I've learned to help publish other people. Um, But the good thing is when I write with Steve, is he's the opposite. He can just write anything, any concept. And have a little fun with it and throw it at. And, and, like, that's how the Black Badge, which is our weird Western series, started. He wrote just, like, a cool series of pages um, and showed it to me. I was like, well, this is really cool. Let's give it a story. Um, and so he's done that a bunch of times. And, you know, two times it stuck. One, we wrote the Baragata saga, which was a million words. And now we're writing um, the Black Badge series. So we sort of are opposite in our ability to to start projects, which is...
0: How would you say that you don't write very fast, but you just rattled off a number of huge <laughs> projects that you've done. And, you know, you mentioned uh, George Martin earlier compared with the output of some other very famous authors, you know, George Martin, Pat Rothfuss, where is book three is the yeah. <laughs> is ever going to come out Um You know, that's uh, prolific is maybe in the eyes of the beholder.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's an interesting point, right? It's sort of what's happened as technology has come into this industry, Yeah, especially in the indie world. Like, yeah, I've written like 20 books, which 30 years ago is like a career worth of books. Right. Um, But, you know, that also came with 30 years ago. You had to submit it, wait for an agent to read it, send it. I mean, from finish to publication, it was probably three years. And then sequels took forever. Whereas now, especially in the indie world and with eBooks being lower price and all of that, and Amazon sort of running everything, uh, you know, speed is helpful to selling. Yeah. And for a lot of indies, honestly, even trad authors, you know, mo- most aren't full-time they're making enough. Um, but for a lot of the indies that are full-time, they are able to pump out quality content, uh, A very fast speed, Um, long series, multiple series, you know, speed is what is needed to sell. So that idea of prolific has kind of changed as you move into the indie world.
0: Yeah. Let's not even factor uh, Rick Partlow into the
1: Yeah, exactly. Rick Partlow is one of our biggest authors or a drop trooper. And I think he's writing book 60 right now. Um, And it's like, Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) He's done that all basically on his own. He puts out a million words a year and, you know, he makes money to make up for that. Now, I'm not saying anyone can write 50 books and throw them up and make money. I know a lot of people that have that many books and haven't. Um, But when you've sort of gotten to sell and Amazon likes your name and, you know, that sort of speed can keep you earning. Um, Whereas if you slow down, it makes it hard to keep up that momentum. And whereas in the trad world, you're kind of earning based off of advances. So you're building your worth, getting an advance. And that's sort of more how my personal writing career is structured.
0: Yeah. We have a question that just popped in from Zamusel. Please forgive me if I murdered your name. Rhett, what's your stance on Brandon Sanderson moving his new audio (laughs) off of audible proper. And, you know, this was a little, um, uh a little thing that came up a couple of weeks ago that um Brandon was taking a stance uh, for um what he perceived as um I, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm trying to summarize what he said. Um he, he was thinking that you know the audiobook industry was a little lopsided and and he had a big enough name that he thought he could make a difference in the space. Do do you have uh, an opinion on on that? Whole, I mean, yeah, whole we
1: we talk about it a lot, honestly. That was yeah. a big conversation. I'll try not to say anything. That'll get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> I'll just say we all know it's lopsided, yeah. right? Um, but that's what it is. And you know, while I do think Brandon meant the right thing when he did it, a couple things shocked me is the fact that he didn't know that, which is common knowledge for everybody like that 40% thing. Everyone knows that. Um, so it's a little odd that him or his agent didn't know that to begin with. Um, but yeah. the problem I have with, with it is personally, I think he should have kept it more private in his response to audible, maybe got some other big authors to email their thoughts to audible as well. Cause what it does is it's going to convince a bunch of smaller and mid list authors to think, Oh, audible is evil. I shouldn't use them. I'll go wide sure in certain genres that works in science fiction and fantasy there's no wide audible is as of right now the only place to make legitimate money in audio if you're huge you could do it on your site but that limits your growth um, right. you know you'll make what you can make but it limits your ability to become um, a sensation like someone like craig Allenson, who's an indie author who's on audio and makes all his money off of audible and is rich because of it because that is where it works yes 40 percent sucks if another corporation, North Billion Dollars, actually even tried over the last ten years to make a competing audiobook listening service, that would be different. Just like it is on Kindle, where it's higher because other places tried. And they didn't really succeed, but they did in enough legitimate market share where where KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, had to do the right thing. Right. Um, and that's the, our only problem with what when Brandis and Sanders, Brandis Sanderson comes out and says something like that publicly is I just think it could cause a lot of authors who don't know better to make the wrong decision. If you're Brandon Sanderson, of course, Spotify or or one of these other places is going to pay him millions of dollars to come over there and bring a couple of his fans over because why wouldn't they? But for most authors, it's not even viable. Uh, It's not possible. What hurt Audible enough is – him not going with them, right? But the 40% is public knowledge is right on their site. Um, So again, I just not really understanding why he didn't know that. And I do think being so, 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 so public with it is going to hurt some authors in the long run because they're going to run away from Audible like it's the bad guy. And sure, they are the bad guy, but they're the only guy. And, you know, if you were the only, only player, um, essentially a default monopoly because no one has even tried especially in science fiction and fantasy, like, why wouldn't they do that? They used to give a lot more. But the one thing Audible does do is put millions and millions and millions into advertising and building its subscriber list, which gives you the chance when you publish a book there to have a hit. And if you just use Chirp or one of these other places, you might make a little bit, but you don't have an opportunity to have a hit. And a hit is life-changing money. Brandon Sanderson just made tens of millions on Kickstarter. He doesn't need life-changing money. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's kind of our only thought on it is sure. It sucks that it's unfair, but until it is fair, I would really advise people not run away from audible. It's where the listeners are in science fiction and fantasy. And that's what we're talking about here. And it's where you have a chance to kind of change your entire life.
0: Well, um, uh I have I have the Audible app on my phone, obviously. And it is uh it is the um you know it, it's a super handy app. Every book that I ever look for is in there. Um I also have an app called Libro.fm. Yeah. Uh and I have that because one of the big publishers, uh HarperCollins, I think it is, sends me audio arcs. And they use Libro to do that. And that's the only reason I have. It yeah. Which is the library system, right? Well, it's, it's that, but it's also, um, it, it has, a, a, a storefront kind of, it's, it's a little convoluted. That's you, you don't know exactly what their deal is. And it's, uh, the interface is not all that great. Um, and audible just works and everything that you ever want is just there. And, 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 you know, I and, hate to say, but there's a there's a premium that goes along with having the best marketplace on in the market, and being the first, right? And Spotify right. is making moves, and that's
1: a good thing. Spotify might force them to have to do something. The only yeah. problem is, is Spotify is known for its awful, awful royalties for musicians. Right. So, like, I don't know that they're a hero here besides existing, right? Um, at least with Audible the prices are high enough where you can make a lot of money off of that 40%. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, it just, there just needs to be a competitor for it to matter. And again, Libro is great. You know, a lot of the big publishers use it for libraries and you can rent the audiobooks for free, but that helps readers. That doesn't help authors. Right. You know, especially science fiction. We're not writing. These aren't beach reads. Um, They're not the next commercial thriller. It's a smaller market. It's not getting the library downloads like these other things. And you know, even the biggest books in our genres off of libraries are making maybe tens of thousands, nothing bigger than that. And I'm that's talking about like the most famous people. So yeah. It's still not a big market share.
0: Um, while we're talking publishing, and this just kind of um is where the conversation kind of wound up five. The cake says five years back, there was a big 20 books to 50 K movement predicated on the theory that if you wrote 20 books in a year, you could easily, they claim make 50 K a year. Do you think this was, and is feasible um, just for, for transparency sake, Craig Martell, the, the, uh, the guy that, that runs all of the, the uh, 20 books to 50 K conferences is, a, is a, a great friend of mine. And, um, you know, I, I, love everything that he does for the author community, but do you think that's valid, you know, as a publisher and and someone that sits in the position that you do, do you think that's an attainable, uh, th- and I think the, the original theory was that, um, not Craig, but, um, Michael, Anderle. Michael, Michael Anderley, his, his partner. I, I think that was the original theory that if I wanted to retire in Mexico, I would need $50,000 a year. If I remember the story, right. And and that kind of do you, is, is that still a feasible thought? You know, build a back catalog and kind of let it earn for you.
1: I mean, I'll be blunt here: if you can't make it fifty thousand a year off of twenty books, then you should stop writing. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, I, I think the way I see it is, sure, that's a great goal as a minimum, but if you're writing that many books that fast, like. I always, like, aim higher, right? Like, you should make more than that, probably. Is it a feasible goal as a minimum? Yeah. If you're writing in relevant genres, right, like, the important part to remember is if you write 20 books in a market that doesn't exist, um, you know, just think of some random thing that you've never seen on shelves, and then it probably doesn't exist, <laughs> right? Like, right, um, then your 20 books probably are going to make nothing. Uh, So there's still an element of making sure you're writing the right stuff. And, you know, that's important. But yeah, if you have 20 books out and they're in sellable genres, you should be able to make $50,000 a year. Um, I would say you should aim higher than that, right? Like $50,000 a year is great to survive in a lot of places, but it's 2023 and things are really, really expensive. And if you're kind of living on your own or sole provider, that's maybe not enough to live in a lot of places. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, writing is hard. I think what's happened is indie publishing and these groups and audio and all these things that have made a lot of people, a lot of money. Yes. More authors are making more money than ever before, but it's still a really, really, really small percentage of authors. Right. Making huge amounts. And honestly, like,
0: And and this depends on how you are. You have to show up for every
1: day. Yeah. And if you're writing that many books, that is a lot, a lot of work. That's more than a full time job. I mean, the dream of being a writer used to be write one book, get rich off of it, then maybe do a sequel. And, you know, that's a different type of dream than write 20 books in two years and make 50 grand. Um, So I think really when you're setting off, decide what you want. Like, do you, if you want to go full-time, you sort of have to tailor your career in a way where you could build up worth and money. Um, I tell people all the time, like rushing a book out, not considering audio and doing audio later when the audio is probably going to do badly. All you're doing is hurting your future. Yeah. If you perform, you're worth more money, not just in the market, but to all the other people who exist in the market um, to maybe get an advance to fund your next production, that sort of thing. So more options is great. More authors are making money than ever before. But on the flip side, more authors are making nothing than ever before because there's like 3 million books on Kindle and you've only heard of a thousand of them. So, you know, like that's the difference when people say, oh, the average book only sells a hundred copies or something like that. It's because you have to factor in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands a year that are coming out that someone just threw up on Amazon, that don't sell anything. Right. And so there's a a good and a bad side to everything.
0: Um, Actus, I see your question about dialogue. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But Chris Taylor says, speaking of audio, do you prefer to help your authors sell audio rights to big audio publishers, or do you feel it's more beneficial to have the work done in-house, or is it completely case-by-case? Case? How do you guys handle that?
1: No, that's completely case by case. Uh, I mean, we work with everyone, all the audio publishers, uh, it could be a certain narrator, um, someone needing more money up front versus higher royalties, um, or just, you know, we're too booked in a certain period. And so it's good to work with a partner. Um, but you know, when we sell audio rights unlike a lot of the bigger publishers, like we don't just sell it and move on. Like we, try to work with all these audio publishers as partners helping with casting, marketing and all that stuff. So, I mean, we market the books they put out. If we were to go through, say like pub or uh, recorded books, we'll market it just like it's one of ours, even though we're getting less of it. And because again, it is a really, really competitive market. Um, people always compare ranks of on audible and Kindle, and it's not really comparable The top 1000 in Kindle for rankings is a lot different than the top 1000 in audible as far as, Staying power and how many copies are moving. So, yeah, it's purely case by case. Uh, we do a lot of books, so we try to be responsible with every
0: title. Um, do you, h- how many submissions do you do you if, if you published two hundred books last year with Aethon, um Any idea what your submission pile was like?
1: Let me. We let me could actually look. <laughs> Let's see we delete them when they're old so yeah it's hard to say but i would say we probably get a thousand in a year wow or or more um you know and always remember like 30 a third of them are wrong genre (laughs) or or like stuff that isn't even applicable right but yeah we get a, a lot a lot a year and you know as when we started we would take on a, a lot more things. Uh, we're we have to be pretty selective now, um, just because we're bigger and the market has gotten even harder. But yeah, we get a lot. <laughs> we have someone that helps us like all the time handling our submissions folder, so we don't miss anything because so much comes in.
0: So you guys have developed a legit slush pile. Like you always hear that, you know, from big publishers, but you guys have probably get more submissions than you can. Um,
1: Probably more than them because they require agents. Right. So true. yeah, we, we have a, have a pretty big one. And you know, when I was just a writer, I was like, Oh, why do these people not answer? Yeah. And I learned fast, like, Oh, this is why. Uh, and that's why we write on our site. Like if you don't hear from us in three months, reach out and then we'll let you know. But if you don't hear it from us, that probably means we're not gonna take it on. Right. Just because we do have a full slate. And our big thing is we don't like like we publish as many books in a year as we can. Right. Without over flooding certain genres and making ourselves compete against ourselves. <laughs> right. And that's something, something we don't want to do. So we do have to be selective for that reason as well. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's a a lot that come in. It's a lot of work. I see someone asking what the accept reject ratio is. And I, that I'm not really sure. Um, I don't, you know, I don't break down the numbers of how many submissions we get because, you know, that's something that's useful for agents to know, but for us, it's not too helpful.
0: Right. Right. Um, let's talk craft for just a minute. I'm trying to find this comment. Um, from actus uh Rhett, do you think dialogue is an important part of a novel and what percentage of a novel should be dialogue well you um you tend to write in first person and i apologize if you guys can hear this banging outside we've got some construction work going on next door and anyway um you write first person uh, a lot so a lot. uh how much how much dialogue uh and, and do you even think about it in in those terms or is uh you know how much is dialogue versus internal monologue and how much of the story is revealed through the conversations that your characters have
1: yeah i mean it probably depends on genre um but if you're looking at what like standard editor advice is what the big board would be looking at um that level of editor yeah i mean dialogue is is everything is a story right the thing that i learned early on from my editors there was if you could say it in dialogue versus a chunky paragraph then it should be in dialogue um and that's that's sort of how i view it now when i i write at this point i've done it enough where i don't really think about it um i write very character focused so dialogue is Kind of everything It's what they're figuring out about the world through. Um, You know, if you're in this huge multi-character epic fantasy like Game of Thrones, it's going to be a lot harder uh, to not do info dumping and descriptions, things like that. Um, But yeah, dialogue is really important. It keeps the eye moving down the page. Um, That helps with readability because the reader is progressing and not caught in like a slog of long paragraphs right um so i don't think there's a percentage and i i know actus so he's i think just messing with me <laughs> but <laughs> yes for us um it's very important to sort of tell the story through dialogue because that's where you figure out things in real life yeah
0: yeah what was it that that originally made you a fan of science fiction was was there a a particular story um or was it the idea of exploring things that might not quite exist yet and thinking about where the world could go What, what was it that that initially drew you to science fiction
1: i mean for me it's always been movies and tv i actually was uh i started out writing fantasy that was sort of what i, I so love everybody both. else yeah, yeah. so that's, that's what i loved growing up i kind of i think i started writing science fiction when i was in college and that was when i sort of decided to read a lot of like golden age stuff and really try to learn from it um and so then after that i went on a kick i wrote like only science fiction straight um until me and steve wrote a, the buried goddess saga for like two years and I got back to sort of my fantasy roots, but yeah, it's always always been movies for me. I mean, Star Wars obviously for everyone. I watched Star Trek a lot growing up with my dad. Um, oh yeah. And then of course when I was old enough to play video games, there were so many. Um there were back then, there were all sorts of great Star Wars games, obviously, uh StarCraft, all sorts of cool science fiction sort of worlds and properties. And so that that was really where it started. Honestly, it's it's funny but none of it came from reading itself you know i've read things because i watched stuff i liked and then wanted to read similar things yeah um, so it sort of worked backwards but i also think that's a lot more common than people realize
0: yeah well you've written um far future sci-fi you've written near past sci-fi with the lunar missile crisis and you've written um uh, the Roach is uh, kind of a a present um, time uh, science fiction what's superhero. So I don't. Does that get classified as science fiction, fantasy? Nobody knows. It doesn't
1: really have a genre, right. which is part of the the struggle in selling it. Yeah. Um. It's set during the '80s. It's a vigilante, but he's technically an ex superhero, which makes it science fiction fantasy. <laughs> but really, there's no powers or anything, so it's more so a thriller.
0: Gotcha, got gotcha. you. So
1: yeah, that's what sort of made that a very tough market to crack, but yeah, yeah,'ve sort of written everything except for a super far future like alien <laughs> war right. type space opera.
0: Well, even in your um, in the Luna missile crisis, you're dealing with technologies that are um, that don't exist um, you know so we're we're talking like far future technology, just happens to be said in our recent past. Um, what is it about, um, you know, this future technology? The uh, Is that easier to write than trying to mold something into our current understanding of technology and science? Um, is it easier to say, well, if I just set this 500 years in the future, then I don't have to deal with, is this possible or not? Or are there still constraints that that you put on yourself or that more importantly, that readers come to your book with to say, well, this is not plausible. And, and, you know, even though it's set far enough in the future, does that make sense at all?
1: Yeah, I think it sort of depends what subgenre you're writing. Yeah. Right. Like if you're really writing hard science fiction, even if you're setting it 500 years in the future, every technology, everything, should be based on physics and things that are possible um within the laws that we understand and you know so that's a very different type of, of genre and you're going to get readers that understand those things um right and, and you know i always hear people, suspension of disbelief is important Right. Like right. in the Luna missile crisis, the aliens bring over a technology that is far beyond us. We can't understand it at all. But I mean, we had someone who understands a lot of science read it for us because while a lot of it is made up, we wanted to establish it within rules. I think that's really important in science fiction and fantasy. I mean, in fantasy, it's no different than developing like a magic system if you're making something up is you want it to feel consistent. So you're not just winging it and making the shit up as you go so right. that the reader isn't questioning it as, as they read. Um, Cause the moment you sort of change the rules on the fly or do something really out there based on some sort of the rules you establish most discerning readers are going to notice that. And I think that's important to science fiction is even if you're making stuff up, keep a consistency of rules. Um, and that will help, right? Like Star Wars kind of jumps a little bit all over the place, but going back in the future, they've kind of embraced this no cell phone world <laughs> that, that was originally created because there just were none back then, and they didn't think of it. Um, so they kind of stay consistent within that technology level or technology style, and I think as long as you do that and stay consistent within rules that you create for your world, It helps um you know if you're writing a military science fiction book versus a space opera with aliens and teleporting and stuff you know like a gritty grounded military science fiction book you're probably going to want to adhere to the rules of war just like the rules of physics and how those will affect war and weaponry in space and stuff like that um where if you're just writing a guardians of the galaxy star wars type space opera to stay consistent, but you can have more fun with different technologies, alien technologies, things that don't make sense to us as we understand them. But if you keep the rules consistent, you're not going to shock people into realizing as much that you're making stuff up. So it really depends on what kind of book you're setting out to write. Um, you know, if you're trying to write a star Warsy fun space opera and every chapter you're spending pages Detailing certain technologies, you're probably not writing the right genre because you're going to turn off readers who are just there to have fun. Yeah.
0: When when you're thinking of a new project, um, do you think about genre and subgenre uh, or are you just thinking of a great concept for a character? Um, like like, how do you start thinking, well, this, would, this is a great idea, but... Um, you know, maybe this needs to be more of a space opera than a military sci fi. Like, how do you start kind of establishing where it lives in the book world?
1: Yeah. I mean, I try to figure that out early on, but I, uh, something me and Steve have to always tell people is don't look at our catalog of books as an example for what's smartest to make money and sell copies as an indie author. Having Athon as basically our full time job, we're writing. Has become more of a side thing for us. We, we could kind of have fun with it and write whatever we want. And like you'll notice that looking at my catalog, like the Roach doesn't really fit in the market. Vicarious fits in 13 markets. Um, you know, we wrote our best selling thing now is a weird Western, which is a tiny niche market. Um, so again, it's, I think if you're an author and you're trying to make a, money in writing, starting from nothing, um, whether with a publisher on your own, yes, you should identify the primary market slash subgenre, not even genre, subgenre, right? Because under science fiction, there's a million different things. Identify who you're selling it to, what kind of things they like, and if this fits there. Um, I think that's very important if you're looking at this as something you want to do full time. Otherwise, you're really playing the luck game and you can't go full-time based on the luck game unless you sort of luck into a viral hit. Um, so I mean, there's different ways to approach it, but I always tell people think about what they want out of this before they make those sorts of decisions.
0: Right. Um, the, the publishing landscape, uh, not just publishing, but the, the genre landscape has really... Opened up over the the last decade or so. Um, Steve and I were talking just the other day, um, and we've had a number of conversations about lit RPG or game lit, and and this is a, a subgenre that that I just don't get. Like it's it's just it's not my favorite thing, um, but I know that is wildly popular for a lot of people. And um, are there other subgenres that have kind of emerged that, um, that have taken you by surprise or that have maybe, um, you know, piqued your interest that 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 you're discovering as you go along. I
1: don't think any, anything anymore takes me by surprise. Maybe at first, and then you look at it and you start to understand that it's sort of reacting to what readers want at the time. And you know, yeah, science fiction, like military sci-fi, is the biggest yeah. indie subgenre and you know when you really look at it it starts to make sense um a lot of the readers in ku are veterans Um, we we run into it all the time they're unlimited incomes ku is a great way to get as many books as you want and that really helped that genre explode and also trad pub sort of moved more into the space opera angle and it allowed indies to really take over the military sci-fi genre. Um, so in the market dictates a lot of that stuff. I think with, with lit RPG, you know, it hits, I uh, we've heard and sort of seen proof that there is a lot of crossover between military sci-fi readers and lit RPG readers. And I think a lot of those books hit sort of that, that pulp sci-fi fantasy brand from all those years ago, sort of coming back. Um, they're fun, they're fast paced. Um, They, you know, chapters move quickly in order to hold your attention. And I think Amazon is a huge reason those things have exploded because on shelves, it was science fiction and fantasy. On Amazon, that's at the top. The shelves are all these different subgenres. It's really allowed people to understand different subgenres within the main one. And again, there's no category on Amazon yet for lit RPG, but there's certain categories where a lot of them sit. Right. And, you know, you could use metadata and stuff to show that it is one. Um, and I, th- I think that's allowed sort of these genres to explode in these certain markets. And Kindle Unlimited, Kindle being the main one we focus on, um, that, that's really important, right? Like it's really hard to sell traditional fantasy because the top 50 slots are always taken by George Martin, Pat Rothfuss, Harry Potter, (laughs) the Witcher and all these things that have become these immensely famous properties. And when you, you know, niche that down to fantasy with game elements, you know, and, and game led progression, and all these sort of things that allow you to sort of move into a different path. than those huge ones, you can get more exposure and get seen by readers. And that helps build a genre. So that's why I think these genres started and then authors find them and, and fill them and, or are the first to the market. Um, Same how some science fiction authors were. So I think Amazon really, really changed how genres are seen where it used to just be, this is science fiction or fantasy. Now, like, it's well, dystopian and, versus space opera. It's yeah. science fiction's implied.
0: Yeah, and, and science fiction and fantasy are usually lumped together. I mean, when you go to a bookstore, they're they're a lot of times on the same series of shelves, so you're side by side there. Um why do you think there's so much more turnover in science fiction than fantasy? Like you said, that the top 50 slots are always taken by the same. Um, authors in a lot of times with the same books, um, whereas science fiction will will roll over and and you you have more um, competitive opportunity to to have the top slot there, whereas fantasy tends to, you know, just kind of they're, they're stalwarts that they kind of hang out there. I, any idea why the the difference? And uh, I, I mean. I don't know, like
1: the things I'm listening, I think in science fiction, there's a lot less massive worldwide properties that started in book form, whereas all the big fantasy ones started in book form. True. Science fiction, you have The Expanse and that's it. Yeah. Um, and then, you you know, you have things that are standalones here and there. Um, but as far as the big epic series that take up a lot of slots, it's really The Expanse. Um, you know, altered carbon was there for
0: today. I am super pleased to be joined by Rhett C. Bruno. Again, we, uh, we did this about a week and a half ago and uh, something happened to Rhett's internet at the end. And we just kind of, you know, had an abrupt end to that show. And I, I didn't want to leave things unsaid that we were in the middle of talking about. So Rhett has graciously agreed to join us again and uh we're gonna talk some more about the the present state of science fiction uh publishing and writing and in 2023 and I know we had some uh, some pretty great conversation going last time Rhett. we were talking about audiobooks specifically uh, and how uh, you guys at Athon um, that's really a priority um, for you de- developing audio and, and ebooks more so than print and um, you know kind of compared to the um, the way that uh, traditional publishing has always uh, focused on print first and then you know ebooks where they they like had to be dragged into ebooks um, And then audio has always been this kind of niche thing off to the side. Oh yeah, we'll also do an audio book, but it's not been a priority but but we're starting to see some of those, uh, attitudes change. Um, what What do you guys think uh, will be some of the um, the biggest trends in twenty twenty three Or how are you seeing the uh, the industry? You know, what what do you see on the on the near the near horizon?
1: Yes. Yeah, so again, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We had some <laughs> we had construction, and our internet likes to go out for periods of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, audiobooks have been big from us from the start. We started like five years ago when Athan started, and part yeah. of how we were able to start was we, you know, teamed up with Audible Studios and got some advances for a series for by authors that helped us sort of have the money to then push and market those initial titles. Right. Um, and kind of the big trend we've seen and something we were at the forefront of was the synchronized launch. Um, which was kind of something that, you know, not not a lot of the bigger publishers were doing, or if they were doing, it it was more for the bigger titles probably requested. And now you see it like almost all the time. And when we started doing that, even with Audible Studios, they were like the studios themselves were like, just didn't know how to handle it. (laughs) Right. Cause they were so used to getting a book that had already been out for like a year and, Right. every typo in the world was found to where we were like, All right, here's the book. that comes out in 90 days. It, you know, it hasn't been proofed yet because this is such a rapid style yeah. and, you know, narrators had to get used to working through typos and stuff. So it was a, a learning experience, but now you see it everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, as far as trends, it's impossible to predict what genre trend will really pick up. Um, you know, during COVID we saw the more fun, lighthearted, fast paced type stuff, just pure entertainment take off big. Um, and you know, on the thing with audio is unlike on ebook, where sort of Kindle unlimited kind of defines which genres are popular for Indies versus traditional publishing, uh, On audio, it's kind of hard to see what's indie, what's not, and so everything sort of gets lumped together um so there's very different markets but i think what indies realized early on is they could request certain narrators and help build certain narrators up and you know last year we saw just an explosion of a few big names and genres kind of taking over and being the one that everybody wanted to where now there's too much stuff for them and it's all spreading back out. So I think we, we might see that just more variety of narrator names up at the top. Uh, I mean, you had science fiction, RC Bray just owned the top, you know, fa- fantasy lit RPG with Travis Baldry everywhere. Um, right. But you know, as more people come to audio, cause it's more accessible than ever, I, I think you're going to see just more variety in those names up top because there's not enough hours in the day. <laughs> for for the big name narrators to narrate everything,
0: right? Uh, did you did you guys have uh, any clue that that audio was going to have you know this this golden era that we're seeing now, or was this just an an opportunity that presented itself and you guys seized upon? Like looking back now you're like oh we we absolutely made the the right business choice for how we want to launch Athon and and kind of what our um what our push and and goal is going to be or you know was was it just you guys were both audiobook fans you know like uh, i th- looking back now can you tell i think timing wise we got lucky
1: we were like when we started a year into when audio for indies especially just got really, really big. So we were still at the early portion of when you could just have a a lot of breakout successes. Um, But yeah, I mean, audio is super risky. It's something we, you know, when we started, we were only working with partners because the costs are so high. Right. Um, And as we went and we got like pretty good at selling it, we realized, well, you know, we could produce a lot ourselves and sort of things that we have a better handle on selling make more of them because the royalties are so much higher. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think we really did just get in at this lucky time of sort of early on in the audio phase where we're now it's, it's so hard to become a bestseller on audio now
0: compared
1: to even three years ago. And every year it just gets harder um, because again, the bigger publishers are seeing it as more important audible is pumping more into their originals celebrities are doing it now you know like they created plus which people have a collection of stuff they can listen to for free if they subscribe which is tough right. to compete against with credits um and when that started there were a ton of novels in it and so for six months like right as we were starting a audio for real is when plus came out and we in that first three months. So all our sales dip because they, they put like 10,000 plus free full length novels into Audible plus. Um, and now they've sort of backed away from that and it's become more of a place for shorter things, celebrity things. And I think cool stuff that isn't really credit worthy and the sales have picked back up. So there was a while there where we were real nervous that plus was gonna sort of make it impossible to compete In audio on Audible, where is which in science fiction fantasy, especially, is where all the money is. But we were happy to see that they sort of maybe recognize that or kind of realize what they wanted plus to be because it replaced the Audible originals branch that they had. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've seen all these phases of audio in just five years, and everything has made it harder to sell, especially if you're outside of the real hot genres especially if your book isn't short you know there's all sorts of things that can help you sell on audio where those things don't help at all on kindle or print and you have to kind of weigh weigh the importance of each right
0: um I i think last time we were talking about um the different uh, markets for audiobooks that have come out and and I, I told you that I had uh, Audible on my phone obviously and also Libro FM is another app that I have but but I only have that because um HarperCollins sends me yeah. audio arcs you know through that and that's the only reason that I use that app um man I I've, I've been a subscriber to Audible probably 15 years now if I had to guess and you know they they take $16 out of my you know bank account every month and and I I get a credit that pops in you know like on the 20 something of the month and and I don't even it it's like I'm not even spending that money you know it's just it's just become you know just part of you know what goes it's on it's like here. a
1: streamer right like it, it like, is it when is. do i check my netflix account unless someone exactly. is like trying to steal the the number or something
0: Right. Right. Um, but you know, I know other markets are, are making a push to get in, uh, Spotify, I think is probably one of the, the, you know, making the biggest noise in the area, but, um, do you have any idea if they plan to, to have a subscription that includes an audiobook a month or a plus plan, you know, um, I dabble a little bit in the, in the audible plus, um, but you know, I don't. I don't think they've they've got it quite dialed in to to make the app easy to use and and find something. So anyway, you know. Yeah, I think Audible
1: there. forever. The website is just so much easier to navigate, especially yeah. for plus stuff. We found um, as far as yeah, Spotify is the thing everyone's talking about. Um, at our point, right? Because we're, I mean, we're selling and we're producing fast, and you know it's. releasing fast, it's just not relevant to us yet. But we've talked to some of the heads of the big audio publishers, and everyone's kind of excited about it. But no one's sure exactly what their model is going to be yet. Right. And I think, you know, we're not that excited. Personally, only my partner at Athon Steve was in music for so long, and he just saw firsthand how poorly Spotify tr- treated music producers as far as right. money. Um, you know, I don't know why they would treat authors any differently. And I know everyone like this is all this stuff about the audible 40%, but you know, based on what those sell for and how much you can make, it seems in the end, a lot better than what Spotify is giving to music producers. So, right. you know, it's who knows and who knows what genres it'll take off in. Right. Because. You know, a lot of articles talk about wide audio and stuff, but when you really look and you talk to even a lot of our partners at the bigger audio publishers who publish everywhere, when it comes to science fiction and fantasy, which is what we do, Audible is king, and like by a massive, massive percentage. So you know they are definitely focused on it. You see with the daily deals and. So, on the list they put out, like Audible isn't treating science fiction fantasy as just another thing. right? They definitely put a lot of focus there. And Spotify probably would have an easier time if they tried to pick up on another genre and sort of take that share away from Audible. But yeah, who knows? Who knows if their model be subscription? And again, the plus thing, like the plus stuff, whether you listen to it or not, like. Someone is because they're spending 100 an hour oh, yeah. a hundred grand a day to get these a list a list narrators. So, oh, yeah. but I think that that was almost necessary because like sixteen bucks a month is kind of a lot for one credit. But then when you could also access all that stuff for free, it, it balances out. So, yeah, I, I definitely think they needed that. Probably not when they did it, but now that Spotify and other places are starting to try to compete, that that was sort of ahead of the game. Um, but yeah, I I don't know where Spotify's gonna go. I don't know where all these apps are gonna go. Yeah, I, I think if they try to do everything and every genre without a focus, it's gonna be really hard for them to grow, just because of the the convenience. Like same thing, people read Kindle because they already had the Kindle app, where they right. had a Kindle and all their books moved to it, and it's just there and it's convenient. The UI is fine.
0: Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and same with Audible. Yeah, I I recently uh, got a new Kindle Paperwhite. I had a Kindle Paperwhite that was that first generation that came out Uh, like six or seven years ago, and it had just kind of gotten slow, and I had one little mar on the screen, and I got a new one, and I powered up. uh, I put in my email address that, you know, that, that's attached to my amazon account and all my books are there just bam you know just you know and it's just just like my other one i just pick up where i left off and it's just you know and i think
1: their benefit is it it syncs right with prime and delivery and everyone orders stuff like it just is is all together that's why i mean spotify with music has that other thing to draw people in right but yeah they'll have to see if those people are really listeners to audiobooks.
0: Right. Right. Because
1: as 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 popular as audiobooks are, when you like break down the numbers of how many subscribers there are, it's not like a billion people right. in the world, right? It's it's like in the tens of millions of actual book listeners in the world that are, are using these audiobook apps. And you know, that's a small group of people to hit. Even if Spotify has three hundred million music lovers, they might have no people who want to listen to a full book on their app. So it's just too early to tell. Yeah.
0: Well, as a um from a publisher's perspective, uh, what do you guys think about the plus catalog? And, and I have no idea how the the back end for authors and publishers, how that's working, but is is that something it's not that you guys really are free or
1: free for anyone to use? Um,
0: okay.
1: you know, there was a sort of this idea that it was gonna be like K U for audiobooks, but it's right. not really that. It's pretty guarded and you know they've had some partnerships with some big audio publishers to put backlist stuff into that program um but you know I, I think our issue at the start of it was they were like throwing big huge full like novels in now yeah that were new and everything and it just was like how are, why, why are people going to spend money on new credit-based things when they have so much here now it seems they really are moving away from the novel. I think they they've stopped taking as many from even the other publishers for these full length novels. And it's just a different experience. It's, it seems more for celebrity based stuff, short stories. And that's good, right? Cause yeah. there's never been a market really that makes a lot of money, at least for a long time in, in short fiction novellas and all that. Cause everything is about value. Um, but plus like me and, Steve's Cold as Hell and Black Badge series, and all of that was born because of Dead Acre, which came out in Plus, which was a novella that in any other format would have had no chance. But Plus has sort of given the opportunity for short fiction to sell. Yeah. Um, And they're really, really selective, which makes it hard. Um, You know, that's curated editor edition, right? So just like with a big publisher, you're submitting based on that editor's taste. So it's not like anyone could just use it, but it does open up a legitimate short fiction outlet that no one is going to spend a credit on and probably not going to pay for But if it's there, they'll listen. And, you know, for us, it led into a grander series and I'm sure other people have done that too. Um, And it allows them to put bigger, cooler narrators on it because it's three or less hours. It's a lot cheaper than a full book. Right. Um, so that, that's a cool opportunity, right? In the end, we got an upfront payment for it and uh, nothing else because it's free. And that payment was sort of the pro-magazine short fiction rate. Like, so they're paying fine for it. And, th- and that is a cool thing about Plus. I think that audiobooks and especially the credit system really made shorter books or shorter fiction impossible to sell. I mean, we have our our biggest things that sell are like twenty hour long, huge fantasy type books, right? Like, that's the type of stuff that is credit worthy in our system. And shorter, seventy word, thousand word books, which you know is a normal length book in a lot of genres, just right. became impossible to sell. And the plus system gives those things a chance, which is kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned a minute ago that that during COVID. Um, people's reading taste kind of changed or that the people were, were buying certain books with, with a certain tone. Um, h- how do you see the, the state of, of science fiction right now? Like where, where are we sitting going into 2023? The pandemic is mostly behind us, you know, I, I think, and um, you know, people's lives are pretty much getting back to normal <clears throat> do do you see readers taste changing again or how how do you think I think you could do dark
1: stuff again which is good um yeah in the end the the KU which is where we focus on Kindle it it very much is like like the movies and and the fun blockbuster type stuff has the easiest route to selling um because you're alienating less people um with it real high concept or something really dark or something that honestly is like a harder read, right. That maybe is more intense to read. Um, so, you know, there's always that stuff. I think during COVID that stuff got really, really hard to sell. And now it's, it's getting back to normal.
0: Um, you know, that <laughs> life's getting good again. So we need to read bad stuff to balance out. Of,
1: of course, like post-apocalyptic stuff, always dealt with similar, Virus issues, but it, again, like you see the trends, like for a while, even in Hollywood, it was kind of positive stuff, and now The Last of Us is the most popular thing on TV, and it's basically an epidemic based, <laughs> yeah, viral, post apocalyptic story. So, I think we're back to where anything can sell, yeah. Um, it's just we, you know, that type of popcorn blockbuster, fun and easy read stuff is just always easier um and unlike the movies it costs the same exact to make as the more intense dark stuff yeah um so that helps it stay on that trend of popular um but yeah i mean i think it really depends what kind of things you're reading right if you're still like reading the high brown sci-fi publishers like tor and stuff you're going to get a lot of those slower more high concepts hard sci-fi type things um but you know probably in those places too the things that are making them a lot of money are star wars versus star trek which you know star trek is really popular it was never as popular as star wars for a reason um because it is more techie and and in more of a niche than star wars which sort of appealed to anyone yeah
0: um, i'm I'm glad you brought up um, the last of us. Uh, we've been watching it um, like everybody else has. Um, but my my son Noah uh, got us into it. and I watched the first couple of episodes before, I realized that this was an adaptation from a video game, uh, which, which is exact opposite of the way that it used to work. You know, you used to, you'd have a a, a TV show or a movie that then got a video game spinoff. And this is kind of the opposite. Um, a similar thing happened. I think I can say with the, the black badge series in that it was, it was definitely inspired by red dead redemption. It, it not, not making, direct comparison at all but because red dead redemption was so popular that definitely kind of opened up an audience for that sort of story would is is that a fair thing to say
1: uh i would say it only did that because the narrator happened to be roger clark well Uh, otherwise yeah otherwise the fantasy aspect still makes it really hard to sell to traditional western readers anyway um but that the roger clark thing really helped yeah with
0: but but, what do you think about this kind of reverse adaptation that that we're seeing? Is video game or are, are video games kind of a place where people are discovering new things and then want to find new way it, it seems completely opposite of the way that it used to.
1: um be. well, you know, the the problem has been is that video game adaptations like this have historically been really bad.
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, and this is kind of the first time where like there's been ones that are decent, but I think this is the first time where it it's like, and we're only two episodes in, but love it so far. But it's like been critically received well, fans are receiving it well. And I think, you know, I, I do think they always sort of choose the wrong things to adapt, right? Like adapting a shooter where the story is secondary is tough, where the, the Last of Us as a game is sort of filled with cutscenes and story. Um, you know, it'd be. And it's simpler, right? So I I think that adapting video games makes sense because it's a 1000000000 multi-billion dollar industry. They're as popular as movies, right? Right. Like a Mass Effect TV show or movie would be huge because millions of people played that game. Um, So I think more are coming. But again, it's just about picking the right games. And I, I do think sometimes they're picking games based on popularity and not based on easy adaptability where like, the Last of Us is kind of just a, a visual story, and adapting that is a lot easier than adapting something where the story is just so secondary. So we'll see. This might help them make better decisions, and they seem to be right. They're doing God of War, which again has, especially the newer ones, is heavy story, heavy cut scene, and you know I I know they've been trying to make Mass Effect Forever. Um, so we'll see. It, it helps with anything. And our like, sort of little dabble into Hollywood with Athon so far has helped us see like, if there the more of an existing fan base you have, the easier it is to get anyone to consider making something. Yeah,
0: um, we have a question, Brett, uh, from Kenneth Kinway. Rhett, how do you deal with writers that take forever to submit their works? This is, <laughs> this is one of those questions because you are a publisher that, um, you know, we, we hear writers, you know, talk about the sound of deadlines flying past, you know, and, and it's it's a funny thing. But, but you know, as the guy on the other end and you have production schedules to keep up and, you know, all of that, how do you deal with the, you know, the art of it all and
1: so he's yeah. actually one of our authors who's kind of <laughs> late, <laughs> late on on edits, but I mean we are mm-hmm. we're really flexible with that stuff. I mean we we most authors we say well love, like give it to us when it's ready, and some, most want a deadline because it helps them. Um, so we give up. I mean we don't get strict with our deadlines until the series is out already. Yeah, because then like there's just a valuable nature to having sequels come out at a certain pace um but again if we're kind of we talk to our authors and we'll get a sense of if they think they could even keep up a pace like that or it'll be a longer period between releases ahead of time um so yeah i mean we're not too strict on that we don't have to be because we're independent the reason that stuff exists is because at like the big four these dates have to be set a year in advance so they could prepare getting all the trade reviews and all the stuff that selling print requires. Um, and, and so those dates become something that like, they can't have another book that day. So everything has to be planned out. You'll see, like when you submit to a publisher, sometimes they reject you. One of these big publishers because they don't have any slots open for that genre until 2024. And, and you know, and you submit it in 2021 and you're just like, who wants to wait that long? So that's sort of where deadlines are more important. And with us, where we're indie, um, we could put things up next day if we really need to. So it's not as strict with us. We do just try to work closely with the authors to get a better sense of of when we'll see things because it helps us sell them. Gotcha.
0: Um, I think we, we touched on this briefly um, last week when we talked, but um, Lit RPG, I, I'm still trying to... Kind of get my brain around lit RPG, and it is such a massive seller right now and just completely took me by surprise. Um, is lit RPG science fiction or fantasy or both? It can be both. Um, it's mostly
1: leaning more towards fantasy, okay, just as far as the more popular things, uh, but there's nothing that says it has to be fantasy. It's just that's sort of what the market has gravitated to. And I mean, we think... I think we always think about that is just that the traditional fantasy market has become so hard to sell in and so hard to get exposure in with the huge, popular, long TV show movie series out there like your Game of Thrones and your Lord of the Rings and everything that this, this niche has allowed... Stories that are fantasy with sort of a game spit on them to be seen and sell again when previously like indie fantasy was so hard to break into because there was just, you know, you release your book and you're automatically 50 slots down in the bestseller, that category, because it's filled with TV shows and, you know, and they're constantly like remaking a new version of each of each world, or they're doing more sequels and you're just behind not only the book, but there's like multiple versions of a lot of these books, um, of Lord of the Rings and all those. So I do think it's allowed for sort of a new explosion of fantasy from not only these traditional sources to be told um, with a spin that really gets people turning the pages um with sort of advancement and progression which kind of feeds into people's desire to read read that sort of stuff i mean now you know like like anything in science fiction fantasy it's still a niche right it's not your beach summer mystery or anything like that but it really hits what i think a lot of these science fiction fantasy readers who don't just want the dark stuff are looking for
0: yeah Uh, is is lit rpg um Portal fantasy? Are, are we talking about like a story where we have a, a human protagonist that then goes into the game? Or do these consist solely in the game? Like that it,
1: it, it can framework? be. Uh, I mean, that would, Portal fantasy would be like a subsect of it. Uh, I okay. think at the start it was a little more limited to that. But now, I mean, you'll see an RPG where the world just has a game system in it. And that's just the world. It's not necessarily someone going into a game what you're talking about is more isekai (laughs) (laughs) but no i don't think that that's necessary anymore at all okay Um, it just was it seemed based on what we saw selling five years ago was more popular then, Uh, but now really it can be anything Uh, that system can exist in any sort of world
0: I, i think of books like ready player one and and i i understand that that's probably not you know Really what we're talking about when we talk about lit RPG, but I think it may be a, um, a bridge over to lit RPG for some people. and and I think it's easy for people to comprehend that we've got a character who lives in the real world, but through this virtual reality game, he can go to this other world, and I think that's easy for people to conceptualize. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that more falls into game lit, which is okay. You know, the RPG ha- usually brings uh, more of the stats and and things that a game would have. Okay, uh, I mean, the problem with that comparison and yeah. why you'll see readers like always complain about that it is really ready player one is not for these readers. It's a big four trad pub, you know, put out to everyone on shelves type of thing. Whereas lit RPG is very, very at least right now, this is an indie genre. It's listened on Audible. It's read on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Um, you know, it's so there. It's just different readerships. And while I'm sure most of those readers have tried player, Ready Player One, um, it's it's just a different type of feel, probably. Um, and you know, it was so long ago. Like I know when Audible did a huge. Let rpg focus page or post or email or something it was a little bit ago they put ready player one in there and you know you'd see people on reddit complaining and things that it's, <laughs> it's not it's like
0: not no but
1: but you know but audible also wh- whether they know what it is properly or not they're trying to get the 20 million listeners who oh, are yeah. big for listeners to come over and try this new more independent stuff uh who you know they won't understand the nuances of the different labels yeah uh, on everything and like you said that young character going into and being in the virtual world is was especially back then was sort of a big part of this genre and you know who could say if that helped bring more listeners over but that was something that is a household name that could get them interested. So, you know, marketing is always an important aspect of all of publishing. Right. And the audible knows what they're doing when they're doing stuff like that and grouping things together, because having that recognizable name honestly helps you get people to try out stuff they've never heard of.
0: Right. I get it. Um, wh- what do you see as, um, a-, as a-, a hot genre uh, this year for under science fiction or fantasy do you do you see anything that that's really kind of bubbling to the surface that might have caught you off guard or that you find interesting that people are taking an interest in this thing
1: Uh, i mean there's always going to be the hot ones that just remain hot i think right now uh, cozy yeah which has always been like a mystery type thing Mm -hmm. but more cozy fantasy and science fiction and again, that might have been a result of how shitty the world got for two years. Right. Uh, um, and now, you know, a lot more of that is just starting to come out because it takes a little bit of time. But I, I think that genre is going to grow large. I think in the same way, like video games always used to be about fighting and killing and battling things. And now a lot of the stuff made on Steam, like the independent stuff, is more cozy building, right. um, farming type things. So I, I think that there is going to be more of a growth in that sort of stuff, um, if not selling more, just more people doing it. Yeah. Um, and you see, you know, Travis Baldry had Legends of Latte's, which was an absolute hit. And yeah. that's, I think, every every time a new subgenre pops up, there's always one thing that has to sort of lead the charge. Yeah. Um, and, and be the first big thing that sort of gets people to recognize it. And I think that book is going to help people know like, Hey, I want this sort of low stakes cozy adventure, but in a fantasy science fiction world where I, you don't I'm not used to seeing that I'm used to seeing people stopping the end of the world. Um, so th- that's the one niche I could see growing pretty big. Yeah.
0: Interesting. I, I, I do find it crazy to see how kind of um, feelings in general in society start kind of bleeding over to the, the things that we gravitate toward yeah. it, it's it, it's an interesting thing to like just from a sociological you know kind of uh, bent to kind of watch the things people gravitate toward Um, another thing that I, I just remembered that I wanted to ask you was comic books Um, you know with the the Marvel franchise and DC uh, again trying to get their movie franchise off the ground and reboot it once again um, you know, comic books were, you know, as a genre, this thing that existed in the form that they created, um, but then made the the jump to movies. And Marvel has done an outstanding job, but it's never been uh, a concept that would uh, translate very well to to books. To uh, you know, and whether um, whether we're talking about print books or audiobooks. You know, they they kind of existed in this, you know, uh, comic book form, but never really translated well to anything else. Um, and I know that that you guys at Athan are, um, you know, have several projects that that you've got working. Where have you cracked the code? Uh, have you kind of figured out how to take these these superhero stories and and bring them into other uh, media? So
1: I'll say we've done a few. Um, it's not a market for readers that is very big. It's not big in, in books at all. I mean, it, it just isn't. And that might be because there's so much of it in other formats where yeah. it just doesn't translate well to that. Um, I can't say why it's not. You know, it's so big on TV. It's so big in film. It's so big in comics, but it just never... It's been enough years now where it probably should have. It's yeah. never converted well to books, and that's even you know the adaptations and audiobooks and book versions of Batman and all these things. Like none of them really hit bestseller charts or anything, even with that big name. Um, so the superhero genre is a very niche genre. I wrote one; <laughs> it was very yeah. hard to find a place to market. Steve wrote one again; very hard to place. So I mean, and you just have to. Sort of go in expecting, hey, like this might do well, but well for this genre is different than well for another genre. Because oh, it just, yeah. just yeah. hasn't come over. I mean, we're doing a lot like company, Ethan, with uh, comics coming up, but more the web comic side of things, which typically yeah. is more universal art, more anime style. So, you know, you'll see epic fan. It's not the superhero stuff that maybe DC and Marvel and Western readers are more yeah. used to. So I, I just don't... If that would have become popular in books, I think it would have happened by now.
0: Um, maybe it will audio- if the
1: films completely get stopped getting made. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Do, do those type of stories have a better chance in audio than print? Or is it no. just...
1: It I mean, matter. Uh, the best selling one we did was because it was Steve's and he did it into Plus where it was free and the book was short and it got tons of listeners, but you know that's i think what plus is there for right. so stories that usually people won't try will, that are great people are willing to give a shot um, but yeah i i don't know i don't i don't see a big turnaround for it again i think maybe in like 20 years when everyone's tired of making superheroes movies and tv shows maybe then they'll have a need for this type of content Right. Because it used to be, oh, it was already existed in comics. So people didn't need the books. And then it's now it's TV shows and movies. So, you know, that people don't need to look for books for that stuff. Um, So if it dies in popularity elsewhere, maybe in books it'll become popular. But yeah, it's just, it's small. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. What do you have coming out that you're excited about, Rhett? Um, So what day is it? So March 7th, I have a,
1: <laughs> March 7th, I have a, a new military science fiction book called uh, *Ascendant War Hellfire coming out that I wrote with MB Vance, who's a, a debut author. It's sort of, again, we were talking about dark. And in my own writing, I typically tend to lean dark. And so this is more of that darker, more serious expanse type of, type of space opera. Um, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of vein to my Circuit series and then may 24th i think is book two in the black badge series nice. by me and jamie castle um that's finished finally it'll be recorded soon so we we were behind but we hit the dates and those are sort of the big things we have scheduled um there's stuff behind the scenes but that we can't talk about yet or are kind of pursuing like we'd love to see a black badge comic one day right <laughs> stuff like that that who knows when it'll come to fruition? Um, but those are the two sort of schedule releases we have. Um Athon Books, we have new releases typically every Tuesday. Um a couple every every Tuesday, whether it's new or in, in a sequel, and we'll have that throughout the year. Nice.
0: Um, Rhett, as someone who is a prolific writer and publisher, what do you read? to To recharge your batteries, and when when you read for fun, um, where do you go? Um, honestly, it's really hard to read for fun anymore.
1: Um, to recharge my batteries like that, I typically um, will go more towards TV shows because it's sort of a different experience in reading. Right. Um, but you know, I did try. I read the uh, Tom Pelfroy. Biography, because I never really got into nonfiction, but I thought that might help because it's so different. And yeah. that was kind of enjoyable. So I might try to read some more of that sort of stuff. Um, otherwise, you know, it's a lot of reading things that come in, reading books of ours that come out just to know what's going on, reading my own stuff, or Steve stuff, or editing and stuff. So I see words all day. <laughs> so it is a little tough. And I, you know, I enjoy audiobooks, but I struggle to listen to full ones.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I more listen here and there as tests to hear how someone sounds or hear how scenes sounds or to listen back to my own stuff to kind of get a refresher for a sequel. Uh, but yeah, you know, reading reading for pleasure is tough when it's your job.
0: Someone asked, "Rhett, have you read all of your submissions?" I I would imagine that you guys get so many submissions that it's tough to. Yeah, I mean, we get to read through each one.
1: We get like probably 100 a hundred So No, I mean, I'll only read the one. We have a team that'll bring stuff to us. And I'll, you know, I'm always scrolling through the submissions to see if I see a cover letter that sounds appealing that I say, Hey, like, let's take a deeper look at this. Um, so we're hands-on involved at every step of everything. But yeah, I mean, we can't read entire manuscripts by every author that submits to us that there's just not enough time in the day. Uh, But that's why we've sort of spent years cultivating a team of people around us. Yeah.
0: Rhett, uh, thank you for joining me again. What's Oh, well, hold on. Hold on. We have one one more question from Kenneth. Uh, What's the weirdest submission you've gotten? I'm
1: trying to (laughs) remember exactly what it was. And again, I don't know who (laughs) these people's real names are, so I don't want to say exactly but it was a very strange one that sort of had someone go back in time and it made a very very evil historical character into a good guy and that that one was pretty weird uh, i mean we do get a lot of stuff that's just totally totally off genre yeah whether it's non or, or stuff like that um so it's hard to say exactly because it's it's been a while since we had a super weird one, but I, I tend to if I, we get one, like say hey Steve, like look at this. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, trust me, we get weird stuff, we get unformatted stuff. I get paragraph like books submitted where it's literally just one paragraph and there's no breaks or anything. So
0: that's amazing. That's amazing. Oh man, uh, Rhett, thank you for joining me again. Um, we got to. To put a, a fine point on this conversation, yeah. Um, thank you for that. Um, what's the best place to find you? Is it the, the Athon site? Do you, um, um, yeah, my own stuff, uh, repbruno.com. Simple,
1: because okay. uh, some not all my stuff is with Athon. So the gotcha. personal stuff is all there. My Facebook. Uh, I'm like the only ret seabird on that, right? So it's pretty easy. Uh, anything Athon, Athonbooks.com. Um, you can go to our Facebook page, Twitter. It's all just at Athonbooks uh and yeah all that we have our contact info all that stuff so that's where awesome. you could see every release awesome
0: we'll put links to all that stuff in the, uh in the show notes uh when when i go uh back and fill all that stuff in um rhett always a pleasure thanks for joining me buddy
1: thank you have a good one
0: that's our episode for today there's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.